I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon. And we've got also Cody Float and Jake Stone with us, members of the London Lyceum as well. This is our, I guess, we try to make it monthly. It doesn't always happen the exact same time every month, but it's the monthly Hanover House episode, which we designed to, to have more than just me and Brandon ask questions and to try to ask more, a little, sometimes a little bit more practical questions of how do these serious topics impact and influence the local church. And we're trying to always, every episode we do, we try to, to promote certain intellectual virtues or, or virtues that promote a certain sort of culture. So think charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. Those things are not the only things we want to do, but they are ones that we want to prioritize, particularly like that. And cheerful confessionalism, I think all of us, we really have a passion uh, both for confessionalism, but also for being cheerful about it. So I think we can actually be happy about the confession that we have, which I think we all here affirm and confess the Second London Confession of Faith. Not all of our guests do. Some of our guests explicitly disagree with it. That's fine. That's why we like to promote charity. Um, But today I think uh, I'm really interested in introducing you all to Dr. Tony Costa. Um, He's got this book from H&E Publishing, brand new, called Early Christian Creeds and Hymns. What the Earliest Christians Believed in Word and Song. It's an exegetical and theological study. And I think it's it just, it's a wonderful book. It's got some great endorsement. I mean, you got Michael Haken. I think most of our list, a lot of our listeners love Michael Haken. So if Michael Haken says it's good, then, you know, it, it's good. Um, but what is really unique about this, and we'll talk more about it, is he's got two parts here. Um, the first part is on the creeds. So questions like, what are the creeds? Old Testament. The Old Testament is the forerunner of Christian creeds, etc. And then he's got hymns as well. And so he's going to walk through like 1 Corinthians 14, 26, Philippians 2, 6 to 11, Ephesians 5, 14, and a lot of those other things. I think a lot of our listeners love creeds. Um, and a lot of times we're wanting to recover creeds in our local churches. But sometimes we forget that there are actual scriptural creeds as well to prioritize and emphasize. So I think this is going to be a fun discussion so before we do that, Tony, why don't you, for those who have no idea who you are or who are semi-familiar, just give us a little brief bio about yourself. And then maybe, you know, once you've done that, just what got you interested in writing a book on this topic? Well, I want to take this opportunity, Jordan, to thank you and uh, Cody and Jake and Brandon for having me on. And uh, I, I'm from Toronto, Canada, and I was born in Toronto Raised in a Roman Catholic home until I found Christ when I was 15, um, through the witness of my cousins who became believers before me. And uh, shortly after that, I was led by the Lord to go into higher education for apologetics and uh, defending the faith and so forth. I went into a bachelor's uh, degree program at the University of Toronto, where I studied uh, biblical studies, philosophy. And then I did my master's as well at the University of Toronto. And then I did my PhD in New Testament and theology at Radboud University in the Netherlands. And I am also an ordained minister of the gospel. Uh, I do uh, some uh, part-time pastoring as well as teaching. I teach currently at the Toronto Baptist Seminary uh, as professor of Islam and apologetics. I also teach as an instructor at the University of Toronto in Gospel Studies and Archaeology of the Ancient Near East and the Bible. 
And I'm also an adjunct professor with the Providence Theological Institute in Franklin, Tennessee. Um, so that's basically my background. It's both academic uh, and also clerical uh, at the same time. I'm also married. Uh, I have three children and a grandson. Awesome. So maybe we just set up our discussion and start with, you know, what are creeds and why are they important? And we can just go from there. Sure. Well, the word creed comes from the Latin word credo, which means literally, I believe. And that's why most of the creeds we know today, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and others, always begin with the phrase, I believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and so forth. Uh, and so the creeds function as what we would call today statements of faith. So if you check out a church, check out a website, you want to know what they believe, whether what their theological bent is, whether they're Reformed or Arminian in their theology, you go to their statement of faith. And creeds function as constitutions. They tell you what they believe or what this body of believers uh, adhere to. At the same time, creeds also do double duty. They not only tell you what you believe, but they also imply that the contrary of what you believe is false. And so if you affirm there's only one God, you're, you're asserting that polytheism is false, necessarily. If you believe in one God, you're affirming that atheism is false, necessarily. And therefore, uh, creeds are, are ways for um, groups, religious groups or political groups, to communicate what is their fundamental worldview. And so creeds act like worldviews. They tell you how we perceive the world, uh, what we believe about not just God, but what do we believe about human nature? What do we believe about the problem uh, in the world? What is the solution to the problems in the world? Uh, what will the end look like? What will bring about the consummation of the ages? And so creeds are very important statements. They also uh, indicate those who are in and those who are out. And so uh, in the history of the church, uh, there have been a number of heresies that have arisen. And you will notice that in response to these heresies, the church always published creeds. So Arianism came along in the fourth century and the church published the Nicene, the Nicene Creed. And then of course, uh, later on, you, you had other folks like uh, Nestorius and others, and the church put out the, the Chalcedonian Creed and so on. And therefore, creeds emerge in church history, not only from the New Testament as their primary source, but creeds also emerge in the history of the church in response to not only heresy, but also in affirming what a particular group believes. So the, the Augsburg Confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, all of these uh, emerged to say, this is what we believe against, for example, what Rome says. Uh, and so um, the Westminster Confession, 39 Articles of Faith of the Church of England, all of these confessions say something about not only what I believe, but it also says we believe this in counterdistinction to what this group believes. And that's what we find in the New Testament. When you look at the creeds in the New Testament, there's many of them, uh, they affirm what the earliest Christians believe, and this is very important because we could actually we could actually trace the emergence of later contrary doctrines. So, for example, just very quickly, I'm involved in Islamic apologetics. I debate Muslim imams. 
I engage with Muslims, preach the gospel, share the gospel with them. And Muslims usually accuse the New Testament of, of having been corrupted and that they will tell you that Jesus never died on the cross and he was never resurrected from the dead and so forth. And they will tell you that this is something the church invented much later. What these creeds do is they take us back to the earliest uh, period of the early Christian movement, and they tell us exactly what early Christians believed about Jesus. And therefore, this book is also meant to be an apologetic. It's also a polemical work against uh, not just Islam, but the claims of a number of non-Christian cults today. Maybe we could we could pivot to your discussion in the book about uh, the Old Testament. Um, mm -hmm. I think maybe most of us, when we think about creeds, we think about Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, um, after the New Testament, and then maybe we think about the creeds that we find uh, in the New Testament. First Corinthians fifteen comes to mind, but mm -hmm. you have you have a section in your book where you you talk about um, some of the creeds uh, in the Old Testament. So maybe just take a few minutes to lay a little bit of the groundwork um, there, so we can better understand creeds in general um, in, sure. in Scripture. Sure. Probably the most important creed that we have in the Old Testament is the Shema, uh, found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And in that uh, that creed, it, it says, in Hebrew, it says, Shema Israel Adonai Elohinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then it goes on to say, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul. So in that creed, which Jesus himself confessed and, and Jesus himself pointed to as the greatest commandment in the law, um, and he would have recited that creed at least three times a day, uh, uh, the, the Jews would pray three times during the day, he would have recited that creed every time. Um, that creed is the foundation of Israel's uh, theological um, existence. It affirms that Yahweh is their God. Yahweh, our God, is one. Uh, and of course, the oneness of God is, is something that is integral to all of Scripture, not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. And in my book, I talk a little bit about the use of the, of the Hebrew word echad, which is, which is one of the words for the oneness of God. Actually, it is the one word that is used for the unity of Yahweh. And it is a, a word that also is used in the context of composite unity, as opposed to another word that the Hebrew Bible uses, the word yachid, which usually emphasizes solitary unity. And so what I argue is that implicit in Israel's confession is the idea that Yahweh is a, that Yahweh is a, uh, a unity, but he is a unity which has plurality within him. And this, this can be seen already in the Old Testament with the angel of Yahweh, who is identified as Yahweh, yet his, he is distinct from Yahweh, etc. And so in Israel's creed, the, the affirmation is that their God, Yahweh, this God is the only God. He is their God, and that he is one. And so their allegiance to this God is to be predicated on loving him with your whole being, your mind, your soul your heart. The, Sept the Greek translation, the Septuagint, adds uh, your strength as well, the idea of the bodily strength. And so this becomes integral to Israel's identity. And it's not just, that is the primary creed, the Shema, which means to hear, to listen. But also, in my book, I also talk about Deuteronomy 26, uh, 5b to 9, 
where it, it talks about there how uh, during um, during one of the the feasts of 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 the harvest, the Israelite is to come before the priest and he is to make this confession that uh, that says a wandering Aramean was my father and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there few in number and there he became a nation great mighty and populous and the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor then we cried to Yahweh the God of our fathers and Yahweh heard our voice and saw our afflictions our toil and our oppression and Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm with great deeds of terror with signs and wonders and he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So here's another creed which um, identifies the Israelite with their father Jacob, a wandering Aramean was my father. And then it talks about the the enslavement within Egypt. And then, of course, the Exodus is the salvific event par excellence in the Old Testament. The Exodus is the grand redemptive event for Israel. And and of course, in the New Testament, it gets it it gets fleshed out in, in, in what Christ has done in our exodus out of sin into life. So that creed, of course, is, is a creed that, that speaks of the identity of the people. It speaks of God's redemption of the people out of Egypt, which is celebrated annually at the Passover. Um, but it is these types of creeds that eventually come over into the New Testament, but there's a very important transition in the Old Testament, the creeds are theocentric. They're focused on Yahweh. They're focused on God. In the New Testament, what you'll notice is that the creeds become Christological. They become Christocentric. And so it's not to say we're moving away from theology, but in the New Testament, you will notice the creeds overwhelmingly are primarily and essentially Christological. They're about Jesus, and they're about God's perfect revelation in him. Uh, and, in, and in the New Testament, Paul beautifully takes the Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4. And in 1 Corinthians 8.6, Paul takes the Shema, and he basically identifies the one God with the Father and the one Lord with Jesus Christ. And so in 1 Corinthians 8.6, he revamps the Shema, he Christifies it, and he puts it within this context of this divine identity where Jesus, the, the one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things come, is placed within the divine identity of God. And this is crucial because what it shows us is that from the earliest times, the earliest Christians believed in the full deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and why is this crucial? Because it was the deity of Christ that was undermined at not just by the Gnostics, uh, in the in the early second century, mid second century, but also the Arians as well, and of course Islam today, uh, and and therefore the Old Testament is is very very important in 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 the formation of what these Jewish followers of Jesus would later uh, uh, revamp, if you will, revamp those those confessions of the Old Testament and place them within a Christological context. Good stuff. So Cody, you're an Old Testament man. Um, what are you thinking about creeds and such in, in the Old Testament? How how does this relate to your own studies? Yeah, I would say one of the, um, I guess, credo statements I think about a lot in the Old Testament uh, flows from uh, Exodus 34 about um, Yahweh, Yahweh, uh, 
a God merciful and gracious, um, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So my area of study is uh, the minor prophets. And you see that refrain used by a multitude of the 12 um, and applying that to their own culture. And so I think it is really helpful to think about how these early creedal statements and Israel's theological life are being used all throughout the centuries and being applied to their own particular context, right? And reminding them that these theological promises are abiding towards them, um, particularly if they are those who are truly united to Yahweh by faith. And so I think it is really rich. And that's why I appreciated you kind of beginning your, your book out with that like Old Testament creedal history, because I think it's foundational to realize not only like we were talking about what the New Testament authors are doing with picking up these creedal statements and applying, again, applying them to their own context and particularly unpacking them in relation to Christ, um, but how it's important for even us to think about, again, how, how were creeds used then and how might that bear fruit in our own ecclesial lives today. So. Mm. Well, Jake, have you had anything come to your mind um, so far that you would want to ask or talk about? Just something that I'd like to ask Tony his thoughts on. When you're looking at the Old Testament and the New Testament and you're seeing these creedal statements that are in Scripture, do you think it's a fair assertion for us to make that when the Nicene Creed and other early ecumenical creeds are written, that they were really, and I, I use this term in quotation marks, that they were inspired in a sense to the work that they were doing by these creedal statements that they would see in the scriptures in the Old and New Testament. Do you think that's too a stretch to say that, or do you think we're, we're right to make that assertion? Uh, are you referring to the Nicene Creed and the formulation of the Nicene Creed? Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't hold to the view that the that the Nicene Creed would be infallible in in the sense of scripture. I mean, that's the view that the Orthodox, uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church holds that the seven ecumenical councils are infallible. The Roman Catholic Church subsumes that in the sacred tradition, the idea that this, the sacred tradition of the Church, uh, and the Protestant view has always been that that Scripture alone is God breathed, and that that the creeds and councils are all subject to the Scriptures. Um, so I wouldn't say that the Nicene Creed is is infallible, but what I would say is that the Nicene Creed tries to uh, articulate in in the best way possible the relationship of the son to the father the the idea of the son being homoousios that he is of the same substance with the father i think can be proven from scripture i'm thinking of hebrews 1:3 uh and also the idea of the son being uh eternally begotten of the father uh this is language that uh you the some of the early fathers saw in proverbs 8 when it spoke about wisdom uh, coming forth from God and so forth. There's a little bit of that in the Apocrypha, in Syrac, uh, and in Wisdom. Um, but I would say that the the, the creeds um, are fallible documents that are articulating uh, biblical truths. Good. So here's a question I feel like I get pretty often when creeds and stuff are brought up, because I think, at least for me, you know, I, I remember reading, I think, Oliver Crisp, his Divinity and Humanity book, I don't know how many years Ooh. ago, and he tries yeah. to articulate sort of like 
certain tiers of authority. So you have scripture at the top, the norming norm, everything's subject to that. Below that, you have these sort of ecumenical creeds. Below that, you might have like confessional sort of documentation, and you go on. Uh, And trying to understand the the relationship between the authority of scripture and and creeds, I think can get fuzzy for people sometimes because you're like, well, I do want to defer to the ecumenical creeds, and I think that scripture confirms them. And it's scripture is consistent with them. So is there a way, any way for me to say, well, I could actually critique the creeds in any sense, because I think people who don't, or I guess want to critique the creeds feel like it's almost impossible to critique it just because of the, the, there's almost like a vicious circularity of sorts. So how is it that you untangle that relationship between those two things? Yeah, I, what I try to say, I think R.C. Sproul once said when he spoke of the canon, it's a fall, I think he said it's a fallible list of infallible books, and so there's there's a sense of this there's a, there's an intersect here between the infallible and the fallible, in the sense that scripture alone obviously is is theanustas, only scripture is God breathed, and and the creeds are are obviously they're human products, they're human products that are trying to articulate what we find uh, in Scripture. I mean, we don't have Scripture going through a full, elaborate confessional statement the way we find in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Uh, but what we find in the creeds is they are summaries, if you will, summaries of, of, what, of what Christians have believed. And these are summaries that try to stay as close as possible to the Scriptures. And, and so it, it's not to say that we cannot critique the creeds. I, I think we can, but at the same time, I think we need to understand that if if we do critique the creeds, we need to critique them on a biblical on a biblical basis. Uh, in other words, we need to judge them through Scripture alone. Um, there are some people who have, you know, you have the whole debate of the eternal subordination. Uh, of the Son and so forth, and and Stephen Wellam in his book God the Son Incarnate has has gone into into some detail uh, about that whole argument, and so some folks would take the the argument of the Nicene Creed where it says that Christ is the Son is begotten of the Father, not made. Um, some would take that to indicate some type of a of a subordination between the Son and the Father, and the question is is that an eternal subordination or is that a subordination? Uh, by virtue of the incarnation that took place in time. Um, so you could still be a, a Wayne Grudem and hold to that and, and, and be, uh, uh, and be an, an R.C. Sproul and hold to the contrary that, no, the Son is not eternally subordinate to the Father, and still be within the confines of orthodoxy. And so, um, in other words, there's some wiggle room uh, with the creeds but fundamentally, uh, I think that the creeds are, are a good reflection. Yeah, I was just curious because there's really a lot, um, a lot of different examples of of creeds and hymns in Scripture that you lay out in the book. Um, I was just curious if there were any surprises that you came across in your um, in your study and preparation for writing the book, whether it be the amount of examples that you were able to find in Scripture or just other things that you didn't expect. Um, that surprised yeah. you? Yeah, well, the, in, in my book, I do address one of the hymns that I address. Um, I uh, I refer to it uh, as the wake-up hymn. 
uh, of Ephesians 5.14, uh, which is found on page 135 of my book. And, and so in there, you've got this little statement where it says, wake up, O sinner, and, and, and Christ will shine his light upon you. And so I found that very interesting because although there are some biblical uh, precedents for the idea of, of sinners being, being asleep uh, or spiritually dead, um, I found that that hymn, rather, I mean, we'll talk a little bit about hymns being creed-like and creeds being hymn-like, um, but I found that quite interesting. And, and there we do have a hymn that obviously seems to have arisen within the church, that is the church that Paul was writing to, uh, the Ephesian church. There are precedents for that, this idea of light shining on God's people and so forth. But I would say that that one in particular uh, really fascinated me, the wake-up hymn. So for pastors who are maybe interested in, and I'm not even sure what your what your view on this is and what your practice is, but for pastors who maybe want to incorporate creeds uh, in their, their liturgy, their order of service, and maybe they're in, like myself, in more of a low church tradition that's not used to that kind of thing, how would you advise they go about trying to, um, you know, nudge their church in that direction? Um, and what do you think are some of the greatest benefits that they can offer to the church um, when they are incorporated in a liturgy? Right. Well, what I would uh, argue is the importance of of knowing why you believe what you believe. And, and, and one of the major problems right now in evangelical Christianity, not just in in America, but in Canada as well, and I would say even the Western the Western world, is the the abysmal uh, rate of biblical illiteracy that we're finding among Christians, and not just biblical illiteracy, but just very poor theological knowledge. Um, most Christians today, if you were to ask them to define the Trinity, they would define it as heretics. They would give you a heretical definition of the Trinity, something like modalism or or perhaps Arianism. And and what I would insist upon is that, look, uh, we need to know what we believe. And one of the ways we do that is by affirming it in the creed. I compare it sometimes to the singing of the national anthem. When Americans uh, who sing the national anthem, they're, they're asserting something about their history. They're asserting something about their belief in liberty and, and in, and in uh, freedom. When we, when you guys say the Pledge of Allegiance uh, to the flag of the United States, you are asserting something about what you believe your uh, your status as a citizen is, and and how you are one nation under God. Uh, and, and so, I think that reclaiming these creeds uh, is very important because we need to come back to the the understanding that if we are what we eat, if we are uh, what what we we do what we do we are we are what we believe uh, and so with the abysmal knowledge that we see today current in evangelical christianity it's not just evangelical christianity i'm, I'm sure you can apply this to uh, to to all of christendom but i think it's important for us to get back to these to these creeds uh, and it's not just the nicene creed and it's not just the apostles creed but maybe one sunday um, you can go through some of the other creeds, maybe the the Second Baptist, the the Second London Baptist Confession. Make go back to these, and I think they should also be taught in Sunday school. I think it's integral that we have an understanding about the fundamentals of our beliefs. And if you'll notice in the creeds, uh, it's no surprise that the section of our creeds that deal with Christ is 
far more is far more copious than than that dealing with the Father, the Holy Spirit. And that's deliberate because the the idea here is that in Christ God has made himself known and Christ has fully uh, God has fully revealed himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think it's really important, especially in 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 regards to the state of the church today in North America, which is just horrific. Yeah, that's helpful. I think I think Cody had a question uh, he'd like to ask you about exclusive psalmody. So turn it over to him. Yeah, I was going to ask. So I have several friends who are pretty strong exclusive psalmody folks, um, and so I was just going to ask. And this arose as I was reading your chapter on Old Testament was um in your research did you kind of have you kind of encountered those exclusive psalmody arguments and then how do you how do we think about there being instances in the old testament in particular not merely of like the psalms as a canonical book but also you think of the songs of miriam the songs song of deborah like how do those factor into how we as you know local churches are to think about how we sing congregationally together yeah, I mean, there are churches, uh, and I think in my book I also quote from Calvin, where John Calvin argued that uh, that the Psalms are inspired uh, inspired choruses that the people of God should sing uh, or at least recite in their in their church gatherings. I think uh, reclaiming the Psalms as well. I mean, in some liturgical churches, you do have the responsorial Psalm, uh, where there are sections of the Psalms that you read and that the people respond with a one of the major, one of the main theme lines in in, in the Psalms, I, I think. I think that this is something we definitely need to reclaim in our churches. I'm not saying that the Psalms are the only way that you could sing or the only uh, text that you could uh, cite in in what is supposed to be the the singing part of our worship. I know some churches like that, um, but I do think that you make a very valid point that we do need to. Uh, start reclaiming these psalms. And so what I'm finding in, in my own experience with some of the churches that I've been speaking at in, in Canada is that they are becoming more and more, um, let's just say they're they're beginning to read the psalms at the beginning of the service and, and uh, going through the psalms uh, as a way to worship God, to prepare our hearts for the worship of God. So I think that the psalms are definitely, definitely uh, essential uh, and I think they should be incorporated into the worship of the church. And it's no surprise that the most common cited psalm in the New Testament is, is Psalm 110. It is the most cited, Psalm 110.1 is the most cited psalm. Um, so I, again, I think we need to reclaim that. Uh, I know that I think the Roman Catholic Church and I think the Orthodox and, and even the Anglican Episcopalian churches, um, and I think to some extent the Lutherans, uh, do incorporate the, the Psalms into the reading of Scripture for every every Sunday. Now, talk to me a little bit more about the connection in your mind between hymns and creeds, because uh, I think, I don't know if I mentioned it earlier, but there seems to be pretty sharp distinction with a lot of people, I think, in their minds, where you have creeds are one thing, hymns are a completely different thing. So how are these organically related, or are they not? Yeah, I, I think they are organically connected, and 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 creeds are hymn-like, and 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 hymns are creed-like, and there is a and and there is a lot of interchangeability between them because what hymns essentially are 
their creeds put to music. Because when we're singing, we are asserting what we believe. And so, for example, if, if you look at the Carmen Christi in, in Philippians 2, 6 to 11, uh, I mean, there are some scholars who would challenge the idea that it's a, that's a hymn. Uh, Gordon Fee comes to mind. But I think most scholars, most Pauline scholars would argue that that uh, Philippians 2, 6 to 11 is a hymn, an early hymn called the Carmen Christi, the, the hymn of Christ, the song of Christ. But in that, in, that, uh, in that Carmen Christi in Philippians 2, you've got this very rich Christology, this very rich uh, Christ being in the form of God, did not, think, uh, did not think equality with God, something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And you get into this incarnation and you've got this, the abasement, the humiliation of the Son of God uh, and obedience to the point of death. And so you have this this V shape. You have Christ pre-existing always in the form of God, and then he comes right down, takes on the form of a man, a slave, and so forth. And then because of this, God highly exalts him. So you go from the top, bottom, top again. And and in that, you find at the end of, of the Carmen Christi that the great climax of the hymn is that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So this this kurios Jesus, this creed that Jesus is Lord, is one of the early creeds. It's one of the shortest creeds. It's only made up of two words in the in the Greek text, uh, and and so here you have this beautiful hymn that 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 reaches its crescendo with the exaltation of Christ and and the cosmic adoration of Christ with the confession on the lips that Jesus is Lord. And if we look at uh, other hymns, like, uh, for example, one of the longest hymns is believed to be part of the prologue of John, John 1, verses 1 to 18. That's a, that's a chunk, a huge chunk. Um, and if you really look at it, it is creedal. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And, and then you look at Colossians 1, 15 to 18, uh, who, being, uh, who is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. So when you look at the hymns, um, you'll notice that they are creedal as well. Uh, and, and even when we sing our songs, I mean, if you look at some of the classical hymns, when we, when we sing holy, 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 uh, we, we are affirming our belief in the triune God. Um, we're affirming his, his utter transcendence, his majesty. Um, he, he, he lives in light that no sinful eye can see and so forth and so on. So, so there's a fine line between creeds and hymns. It's very the, the, the distinction between creeds and hymns are porous. And, and, so, and so these hymns, uh, at the same time, affirm what these earliest Christians believed uh, about Jesus. And you find that also in the Old Testament. You know, Cody mentioned uh, the, the Song of Miriam uh, in, in Exodus 15. And, and there in the Song of Miriam, uh, you have the, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. Who is like unto, who is like Yahweh our God among the gods? And, and Yahweh is a man of war and so forth. So these, these creeds are, are basically the way I put it in my book is they are, they're basically creeds put to music. I do think this would be a good book, uh, just as a, kind of a closing thought for myself. I was thinking this will be a good book to do with, um, you know, maybe like a small group or something at church as an introduction to uh, creeds and hymns, especially I'm thinking about my own church um, when this isn't something that we 
uh, that we talk about a lot. I've, I'm just started trying to introduce um, like the Apostles Creed on Sunday mornings and stuff. Um, this would be a very helpful resource uh, for laypersons, definitely. Yeah, I, I I I wrote it with that in mind as well, so that it could be used in a in a in a small uh, a, a small study group setting. Uh, it's not an exhaustive work like something like Grudem's Systematic Theology. Um, but, but I, I wanted to gear it towards a more of a, a, more of a popular audience, a laity, the lay, the laity in particular. Uh, the only regret I have is, is we don't know what, what the music sheets look like. We don't know the, the notes and, you know, the treble, we don't know what, what, what was used in the treble clef and, and, and all that. So it would have been nice to know if if we you know it would have been nice if we had the notations to the music, but we don't. Yeah, and I, I want to echo Brandon. I think what what's nice about this is, let's say you're in a church that is, I don't know, almost skeptical uh, of creedal sort of things. Maybe that's you know that's Roman Catholics do that, or Eastern Orthodox people do that. Whatever it may be, I think this is a nice blend because there is so much emphasis on the scriptural creeds, to where like if you're in a Baptist church. Uh, typical one, you know, just, you know, let's say you're in the book backwoods of Kentucky where there is health, yeah. like skepticism. This is a, I think a nice entryway into broader discussion of the creeds in general. So I think it would be a really nice starting point, especially, you know, I, I know a lot of guys get out of seminary and their first patch pastorate is at a small, you know, country church serving people there who yeah. they just, they haven't heard of the Apostles' Creed besides, you know, the Roman Catholic Church down the street. So just naturally, they're like, "Well, that that seems right. like Roman Catholics do that. I don't do that." So I think this is a nice entryway into introducing some of those things to be able to reclaim that in our own, uh, I guess, lower Absolutely. church traditions. Absolutely, and and it really is a a a, reclaim, a reclamation of uh, these these. Ancient. I mean, when you think about the fathers of the church, like Athanasius, and and you think later of Augustine, these were were people. Uh, Athanasius, in particular, uh, the number of times he was exiled, and and the, the fact that you know Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world, as right after the Nicene Creed is published, almost the very next day, the whole empire went Arian, and so we need to understand that these men um, sacrificed their lives. And willing to die uh, for maintaining orthodoxy, to maintaining the truth of Christ's true deity, uh, the hypostatic union, uh, that in, in the one person of Christ there is the divine and the human, and we must never confuse the two and so forth. Um, and, and and even the fact that the whole question about the Theotokos that is very big in the Eastern Church about Mary being the mother of God or the the God bearer. Most Protestants cringe at at this idea, and they all, well, how can Mary be mother of God? But the Council of Chalcedon was very clear that when they called her Theotokos, they're not claiming that she is a member of the Trinity or that she's divine. All they meant by that was that the one that she bore was the God Man, uh, and he and it wasn't just a man that she bore, but it was God the Son incarnate. And so I think. I've been trying to teach my students not to shy away from that term God-bearer or mother of God, as long as it's understood, as the Chalcedonian Creed maintained, that this is in reference to Christ. It's not about exalting Mary or putting her on a, a level with Christ. It was it was meant to safeguard the, the hypostatic union in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's great. And 
So, I, I mean, I think if, if you're a pastor listening and you want a resource to help your people become more con- conversant in these things, because I think, I mean, the whole purpose of these sort of creeds is to help us distill our theology into bite-sized pieces that we can actually remember and confess together as as a uni- unity of believers. I mean, I think, at least me personally, that, well, that's one of the most edifying things that happens in church is when we confess what we believe together with our mouths. I mean, I, I think it's such an uplifting, uh, reminding, and encouraging moment. So I think having resources like this to help our churches. So if you're a pastor, I mean, the book's affordable, so it's not like you're going to have to spend like $50 on it or something like that. You could buy several copies, give them away, uh, and encourage your people that way. So any closing thoughts, Cody, Brandon, or, or Tony as well? I was going to say one thing I appreciate about this conversation is you mentioned before in the West, the state of biblical illiteracy, and we're not merely seeing that flesh itself out in regards to the lack of using creeds and confessions and things like this. But like you mentioned before, even with hymns, right, putting our creeds to to tune, right, we're, we're seeing this biblical illiteracy affect even the songs that we sing. You know, so you look at a lot of the music that I think particularly the American church in the West is producing. And a lot of it just is, you can just see, you know, kind of like, well, where are they drawing this? You know, these ideas that are being put to music, you know, where are they drawing this from the scriptures? And that's why I love the way that you expressed it of just hymns are simply creeds put to music. And if we think about what we sing that way, then that will hopefully cause us to stop and reflect and think about what are the doctrines that we are sinking together as a body. Like these are greatly important and it should cause us to stop and reflect upon what we're singing in corporate worship. Yeah. I mean, Proverbs says that as a man thinks, so he is. And, and therefore I think it's important if we're go- if we are great at singing the national anthem and, and making the pledge of allegiance then where's our pledge of allegiance to our King, the Lord Jesus Christ? Where's where is the where is his anthem? Uh, and so I think it's really important that pastors, in particular, since James three one says we will be held in higher judgment as teachers, I think it's it behooves us as as leaders in the church, those who are pastors in the church, it behooves us to to feed our sheep, feed the sheep of Christ, and it's it's essentially important to remember that. These early creeds is is what defined these early Christians. When they said Jesus is Lord, and I covered this in my book, when they said Jesus is Lord, that was a very dangerous statement to make in the first century because it was an anti-imperialist statement because Caesar bore the title Kurios. And and even in, in Luke 2, 11, when we, you know, every time we celebrate Christmas and we think of the angel's words that today is born unto you in, in the city of David, a savior who was Christ the Lord. Uh, Luke is basically taking all those imperial titles like Soter, savior, uh, even Christos, Christ, the anointed one, the king, the emperor, uh, and then the word kurios. What Luke is basically saying is that the true emperor, the true Lord, the true savior is born unto you this day, and it's not Caesar. <laughs> And and even this, uh, I, I come to give you glad tidings. This is a technical term Luke uses, the word where we get the word gospel from, euangelion. That was the word that they would use when the emperor was installed. Uh, and, and so it was a day of rejoicing. And, and yet here in the gospel of Luke, we're being told there that this true emperor, the real emperor, the true emperor of the universe, 
is installed. He is born today, and he is the true Soter, the true Lord, the true Savior, the true King. Yeah, that's great. So, Tony, as you have new resources come out, you're going to have to let us know because I think we all enjoyed this conversation. I mean, uh, creeds in the life of the church can't get much better than that. So as new books or resources of yours come out, you're going to have to let us know, and we'll definitely have to let our listeners know as well because I think all of us uh, love that sort of stuff. Sure. I have a, I have another book I'm working on. Uh, probably next year it'll come out. I have another book entitled No King But Christ. And stand, standing for Christ in a godless age. So it's more of a, a book dealing with contemporary uh, events in our world today and and where our allegiance stands to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that is tremendous. So everybody who's been listening, uh, we want to thank you for tuning in. I mean, as far as this sort of topic goes, I think this is right up all of our alley. I mean, you think me, Jake, Cody, and Brandon, and then of course those who are missing. Connor usually joins us here on these episodes. I think we're all really passionate about creeds and confessions in the life of the local church. We find them to be extremely valuable, extremely helpful to be increasing our love for one another, increase our love for God, increase our knowledge of God. So I think it does innumerable positive things for the life of the church, and we want to see that recovered uh, particularly in our own Baptist heritage, where we, where I think all of us are from, and we found that it seems to be lacking in various areas. So, uh, if you've been listening, again, recommend the book, recommend the resources. I mean, anything that can help your your local church and your people uh, get on board with this, I think, is a helpful thing. So, everybody's been tuning in. Thanks, thanks again. You've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we'll talk to you guys soon. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.